the decision to keep Canada part of the new points bet is very deliberate. Keeping Canada means shareholders retain exposure to the North American market through a jurisdiction that is more attractive than most U.S. states. We see a path to profitability in Canada within 18 to 24 months without the need for significant additional capital. You're listening to the Gaming News Canada show with Steve McAllister, recorded live on LinkedIn Audio. Follow Steve on LinkedIn to join the live audience. Welcome to the Gaming News Canada show presented by Osler, Hoskin and Harcourt LLP. It is Thursday, May 18th, 2023, and I am your host, Steve McAllister. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the news that broke Sunday evening with PointsBet's American business being acquired by Fanatics and what that means for PointsBet's still young Canadian operation. We also want to get into what took place in a meeting of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission this week involving the use of the BetMGM logo on the famous left field wall at Fenway Park. And we'll also talk about the centralized self-exclusion program that iGaming Ontario will be bringing to the regulated sports betting and gaming industry in Ontario in the not-so-distant future. And we'll also talk a little bit about the Canadian Gaming Summit that will take place in Toronto next month. Please be joined, as always, by Amanda Brewer, the Canadian Country Manager for Kinder Group, Gavin Roth from Parlay Media Group, and his partner in crime, Mark Silver, from Parlay Media Group as well. And we're also going to be joined a little bit later by Brock University Sports Management Professor, Dr. Mike Narain. Really glad we've got Gavin Roth and, and Mark Silver and Amanda Brewer to uh, to talk about the big news of the week. And, you know, most of us were sitting on our uh, couches or recliners on Sunday night and, and, and watching television. And some of us were uh, recovering from a, a busy a, a busy week at the SBC Summit North America. And there had been some buzz and the news was percolating when Mark Silver and I were on the floor at the, the Meadowlands uh, Exposition Center that uh, points bet was at play for some kind of merger and acquisition action. And uh, as we found out Sunday night, the uh, news came down that PointsBet was selling its U.S. business to uh, to Fanatics, and um, uh, still subject to uh, to a vote by uh, by the shareholders at PointsBet. But uh, it is a 150 million dollar deal that that probably will will go through. I guess the question north of the border here was whether or not the Canadian operation of PointsBet was going to be a part of that, and uh, and it wasn't. We reached out to PointsBet Canada on Monday to, to get uh, a reaction or a statement about the news for Tuesday's newsletter, and, and uh, we're told that they were still getting their ducks lined up in a row. Uh, we did get an email yesterday morning uh, with a statement from uh, PointsBet's managing director and CEO, Sam Swanell, out of Australia, and um, that was emailed to us by Points by Canada CEO Scott Vanderwell. So I just want to read quickly just a snippet from that statement in case you haven't seen the newsletter today. And uh, Swinell said, uh, quote, uh, the decision to keep Canada part of the new points bet is very deliberate. Keeping Canada means shareholders retain exposure to the North American market through a ju- jurisdiction that is more attractive than most U.S. states. If you look at the primary driver behind the sale of our U.S. assets in terms of the level of cash investment required to ultimately reach profitability, our present situation and the outlook in Canada is fundamentally different. We see a path to profitability in Canada within 18 to 24 months without the need for significant additional capital. Gavin Roth, maybe just start with you and and just why I wanted to get you in the conversation here is because of your background and in partnerships and sponsorships. And uh, we've talked here often about PointsBet was very aggressive 
when they got their license to operate in Ontario, actually hired uh, hired Scotty and uh, Nick Salski before uh, before Ontario opened, and other staff, and have invested in partnerships with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, uh, Curling Canada, Alpine Canada, Club Link, and and some other properties, and. Is it all possible, Gavin, that there might have been reluctance by fanatics to to include Canada in in this acquisition because of those existing partnerships? I don't think that that was a, a, a catalyst or a driver here, Steve. I mean, certainly don't know, but those those deals could easily transfer to a new owner unless there's something unique in the language and you know a guy like Toby's listening in he would know this as well as anybody um, how these contracts are structured legally but I don't see any reason that they couldn't have transferred I think this really just comes down to dollars and cents in that um, they probably couldn't come to terms on an appropriate fee to play, to pay for the Canadian business and so for the time being they're gonna go at it but but to kind of get a little closer to your question and, and what you're getting at, um, you know, it's no doubt the team here in, in Canada has been very aggressive in carving out a uniquely Canadian strategy, partnering with uniquely Canadian properties, curling, uh, skiing, certainly attach themselves to MLSE. Um, and if they are indeed performing like you know, their CEO says they are and doing well, there's really, they're going to hold out for a, a significant sum, I think, and they probably just didn't get that. Amanda Burr, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to, to ask you about the, the acquisition and, and because uh, PointsBet is a competitive kinder group and I, I'm not going to put you uh, put you on the spot there, but what I would like to ask you, and we, we've talked about this with yourself and, and Chris Abbott and, and others on the program, um over the last couple of months and and you know there was a thought we we saw cool bet decide to leave the ontario market uh, back in february or, or march i believe and there was some thought that we might see some other operators exit the market uh after the first year that that hasn't happened and and when the, when the news came out this week about about this acquisition the, the one thought i had was just going back to that and um if you're surprised that we didn't see more people exit April 4th and because of the, you know, as you've outlined the costs, the costs involved in operating Ontario and that, and, and yet we, you know, we still have 45 operators in the market right now. And we, we keep hearing that there are other, other operators to come. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I was reminded that actually um, two smaller operators had exited um, prior to cool bet, but, uh, they were small and I guess kind of slipped out very quietly and, and no one noticed. So there certainly have been at least three or four now, Coolbet being the biggest of them, um, that have decided not to continue in the market. And the two sort of words or phrases that you've heard myself and, and Chris and others talk about probably ad nauseum is first, you know, operators needing to see the ability to be sustainable in this market. Ontario, IGO, AGCO want to build a sustainable market. They do not want to build a market that only has the same, you know, big five or six operators that you find in every sportsbook state south of the border. They want to have operators of different shapes and sizes here. But operators also need to be able to find a clear path to profitability. And if that path to profitability, which Coolbet 
cited as a as a barrier for them here. Um, if that path doesn't start to emerge after the first year or two, then you know I think that's when you know the commercial teams, the executive teams come together and start making some very tough decisions. It's it's not a cheap market to be in. It's not an easy market to be in from the compliance and the regulations that we have to follow. We will probably forever have restrictions on how we can advertise on the inducement language. We know that the consultation window just closed on Monday for feedback on the adjustments to the advertising standards. Um, so this is always going to be a, a very hyper competitive market. Um, but the hope is that, you know, operators come in, not with blinders on fully aware of what the requirements are going to be and are able to carve out a profitable niche for yourselves. You do not have to be a fan duel, a points bet, bet MGM, you know, bet three, six, five. You don't have to be one of those really big operators to be successful in this market, but you, you do need to be able to carve out a piece that is yours and, you know, be able to maintain or grow that going forward. And so that depending on the level of sophistication of experience that an operator has, that may be difficult, more difficult for some than for others. Yeah, that's a, a great point, Amanda. And again, I think it's assumed too often that not a big, you know, four or five or six player in the market that it's time to get out. And you're not the first person mentioned to us that, that you can, you can have a healthy business here and not, not be in that upper tier. I guess in fairness too, it's, it's, uh, you know, 12 months is probably a little bit early and, and, we are going to see some shifting and I, I would expect in the way advertising and marketing dollars are spent in year two and, and the, the market, uh, the market settles down a little bit. So it, it would seem to me that the two years is put you in a, a business in a better place to judge whether or not it's feasible to carry on. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, I know just in talking to Paul Burns, he's, he's going to be taking meetings from some, potential interested operators coming from way on the other side of the world. So it's interesting that, you know, Ontario is still, you know, an attractive opportunity for people. Um, the only thing I question at this point is, you know, if you are a very small operator who's not ever operated in North America, um, I, I, you know, my, my suggestion is you spend a lot of time evaluating the, the opportunity here before diving in because, We've talked about, and Paul's talked about the cost of compliance alone being very, very hefty in Ontario. And, you know, we still have outstanding issues that some operators are having trouble finding insurance. Um, so there are some really significant operational barriers still for some operators. So I think, you know, the more informed you are, the better you understand this market, then, you know, hopefully a more successful experience you can have. Mark, uh, Mark Silver, I mean, you were you were around the, the assignment last week in Secaucus when all the scuttlebutt was happening around the acquisition. Any any thoughts from you? Yeah, I'm really just curious about you know, the mix of, of assets, like sponsorship assets that that's points bet has accumulated and uh, and how we perceive. I mean, a little bit of a report card. Now, they're still operating in, in Canada, so we'll see what happens over time, but you know, I'm curious to see how all that, the activating around these partnerships has played out because, you know, we've heard and we've seen ourselves that within Maple Leaf Sports in particular, there's so many brands there and it is it is very difficult to activate as a brand and, and make a difference. Gavin, I'd like to, like to bring you back into this to just provide your context on, without knowing these deals because you weren't involved, obviously, you know, on, on kind of the, the length of these deals potentially and then... 
you know, what does the payment structure look like? Was it, because we've heard over time, you know, as, as stories have emerged, like for example, about, you know, Air, Air Canada, you know, back 20 odd years ago, when they had their sponsorship of the arena here, a lot of that was paid forward in order to fund the construction of the arena. You know, perhaps different than the than the more recent Scotiabank sponsorship of of the arena. But how would you see you know a, what is what I see as a as a particular normal sponsorship within the Maple Leaf sports world? How, how would you see that play out in terms of payments and duration of term? Typically, these deals are you know they could be they could be anywhere from one year put your toe in the water. But I don't think this category would have gone for a single year term. So likely in the three-year range, um, certain triggers, certain out clauses, um, uh, as, as, you know, as is normal uh, for both parties. Um, but payment tends to be in installments. Uh, it wouldn't be annual. It would probably be um, quarterly, a certain amount on signing, and then maybe quarterly after that. Um, sometimes they put in some performance Clauses that if uh, if if a team does this or metrics grow to that, that there's an extra fee. But uh, that's that's less and less common. It it can be done. I'm starting to see that creep into the uh, into the sponsorship deal landscape a little bit more. Um, so nothing nothing out of the usual. I don't think. Yeah, multi-year uh, fee upfront, rest in installments. But again, I don't think that would hinder anything to do with this deal right all those terms would just carry forward to the new to the new op to the new owner a word from our sponsor the gaming news canada show is presented by osler hoskin and harcourt llp osler's gaming practice has the insight needed to help clients navigate the complex and evolving landscape of the gaming industry Osler's position as a trusted advisor in the gaming industry has been built over years of service to operators, suppliers, and gaming authorities. Visit osler.com slash gaming for more information. That's O-S-L-E-R dot com forward slash gaming. Now back to the show. Mark, to your to your point too about the bit of a crowded marketplace with MLSE. I mean, I, it's funny. I did a bit of an informal uh, audit from from I think the last game of the Leafs Panthers Panthers series last week and counted you know nine different betting and gaming brand brands on on the broadcast and and in a, in arena. So that is you know that obviously is quite a bit. Um, and I think Amanda, we're going to see that landscapes likely going to shift in some ways when when the agco comes out with the new standards around uh, uh, uh around betting advertising um is there anything new to report this week we know we know that monday was uh, was the deadline for submitting feedback to the the alcohol and gaming commission in ontario um we did have in tuesday's newsletter that the, the canadian mental health foundation was one of the one of the organizations that has submitted feedback um to the agco uh, have you heard anything new? No, not at this time. And, you know, I think it's been a bit of a frustrating week media wise. Um, I see Dr. Noreen is on. He's, I think, been the only sane voice that anyone, any of the media has spoken to. I don't know why they're going outside the province to talk to people about what's going on in Ontario. So that's just me being cranky about it. But, you know, we actually had one report that said that operators should offer tools for customers so they can set time and deposit limits on their accounts like wow why didn't we think of that i mean i think the first point 
for any journalist who wants to write about what's going on in Ontario should be to go and read the standards from start to finish and educate themselves before they start making assumptions or pontificating on, you know, what it is that we're doing in this market. Um, so it's, it's highly frustrating right now. But I think when this market first opened, one of the things I said is the worst thing that can happen is for people to start calling their MPPs or for the premier's office to start getting phone calls or emails about this. Um, and I've kind of heard through the grapevine that that might be in fact what started to happen. So, you know, there's a bit of a can of worms that's been opened here. I think we all assume that active athletes are gonna get stricken um, and most of us are, you know, prepared to deal with that. Um, but I know that there's been a lot of feedback that has been submitted. There's a lot of unclear parts of the suggested revisions. Um, there's a lot of guidance that would need to come. Um, so the hope is that uh, the AGCO takes the time to read everything um, and then hopefully reaches back out to the industry to re-engage because, you know, we agree that there are some changes that are probably necessary, but it's just, there's a whole lot that got thrown into that, that pot there. And uh, we, we still aren't very clear on, on, a, on a bunch of it, but yeah, I would just encourage any journalists to uh, read the standards before they start writing any articles. Uh, Mark, uh, maybe start with you and I get Gavin on this too. It does feel like there is a win to Amanda's point. There's a window here to, to have a thorough process with the AGCO taking the information, going back and re and reengaging the operators and other stakeholders. I mean, we are we are going to have a, a quiet sports summer, relatively speaking. I mean, we've got the Women's World Cup of Soccer in late July, early August, but it would seem to me that the next there is a window and, until the uh, the NFL season kicks off in September to to do this properly. I agree, Steve. There, there, there is a lot of time. This is a complicated matter that the province of Ontario, the regulator, can cannot on its own in a moment decide on. I mean, I think coming down with something that is very clear cut that everyone can operate within, I think is great. Um, the other challenge, and I, we've spoken about it in this forum before, is you know, when you have a media platform that is national, how does the operator and that media company distinguish between the rules of the HCCO and the lack of rules outside of the province of Ontario? And Amanda, I guess you're the, you're the in-house expert on that, but this is the part that, you know, as an observer and a participant, I'm not, I'm not really clear on because we're still seeing ads from Bodog, for example, that, ha that did appear during the NHL playoffs on Sportsnet's broadcast. Yeah, that's the kind of pickle we're in, Mark, which is the broadcasters have a role to play with this. And because the broadcasters don't filter regionally their ads, um, and because they're all still accepting .NET advertising from the likes of Bodog, um, it's something that the whole industry here, the legal regulated licensed operators wear. Um, so, I, you know, you were at the, the April 4th event. We had Rogers and Bell on stage with Catherine McLeod from Think TV. I didn't get a clear sense that they felt that was an issue or a problem. So, you know, instead of, you know, writing the premier asking for all ads to be banned, you know, maybe they could start pressuring the broadcasters from not giving any airtime to unlicensed operators. I and mean, I'd be happy with that being, you know, included in all of this discussion too. 
uh, Gavin, did you want to chime in here? I, I don't think we had a chance to get you on this topic a few weeks ago when we dug, dug into it a little bit more deeply around the AGCO proposal. No, I mean, uh, listen, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, uh, as, as well equipped as others on this panel to speak about the regulation side of things. I mean, I, I applaud, all I'll say is I applaud, um, you know, regulations and consistency and enforcement. I think it, it provides a healthy environment for brands to want to invest and invest at the right level if it's if if you don't have a well-regulated well-monitored and i think of you know how brands like the ioc vigorously protect their rights and therefore the value of those rights goes up and i think uh, if we want operators in this market thriving you've got to have clear and consistent and enforceable you know, regulations. The one thing that I know we were discussing in the previous weeks was around, you know, influencers and athletes. And, and yes, I, I'm, I'm a fan of ensuring that, you know, you, you uh, put, you have clear rules on that. You don't allow current athletes uh, who can appeal to minors. Otherwise, we're just begging for what's going to happen, what's happened in the UK to happen here, where they start pulling away and stripping back rights. We're going to get Dr. Michael Narain from for Brock University Sports Management Program in here. We, we shortchanged Michael a little bit last week with the show when we were live on location at the FBC Summit. So, uh, Mike, I'm glad you uh, you hopped back in here today. And I, I know you've got some some strong opinions and some perspective on this. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Can, can you hear me fine? Uh, Lo- coming? Loud and clear. Oh, perfect. Yeah, well, I, I mean, my ears are burning because Amanda was saying nice things about me. So thank you, Amanda. But, uh, you know, I think... There's a couple things I want to say here, and one of them is that, you know, with all of this, I'm kind of piling on to Amanda's point, but, you know, there are a lot of people who are jumping up and down right now, and I I think their their anger or frustration is a bit misplaced, and, and it's for the lack of education and research into the marketplace, and so, yeah, does it seem like there's a saturation of ads? Sure, and and I constantly hear this, but... You know, we've got individuals in, in our, uh, I'll say the marketplace, but individuals in, in our society right now who are still looking at this as, you know, this is a stain on the soul of sport. And, and that's just, you know, a really short-sighted view at both economic or mor- morally speaking of, of where we're at in 2023. But needless to say, I think the the key point that I want to drive drive here is, the fact that there is an absence of research and education, and you're going to hear me say this again at the Canadian Gaming Summit coming up uh, next month. But you know, a, a lot again, a lot for a lot of the folks that are like, well, you know, there's inducement to youth. There's uh, you know the potential to influence the next generation. Well, again, there's zero research here in Canada on that topic, and I'm I'm a researcher in this space. And it's because of the lack of funding. So, and this isn't necessarily just a slight on the regulator and the government, but I will go back to what I said last week, which is Ontario had a pretty robust research and education framework in 2019. It was one of the most highly applauded marketplaces when it came to research and education. It was well-funded. And then that 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 funding was paused um, and has not come back. And now that we're in this new world of iGaming and, and single game sports betting in the province, it behooves the province to not just reopen that funding, but to look at the 20 percent 
that they're taken off the top and perhaps look at investing 1% of that 20% into research and education as an example. And I think part of the challenge that I would say, whether it's you're an operator or the regulator, is the ambiguity with the term research and education and not having quantifiable elements. And I know the market is still young and that wasn't necessarily the primary um, piece that the regulators were looking at at the, at the very beginning of the market. But now we're a year and a quarter or a year and less than a quarter in. And now it, it behooves us to get back to the research and education and start making data informed decisions instead of just reactively saying, this is what we should do, or this is what we should do. And just kind of pulling the pendulum depending on the social desirability of the day. And, and that's just not good business, regardless of whether it's gambling or anything else in our society, you need to have the data to support the, the decisions. And we don't have a robust education framework to, you know, provide to our middle school kids, to provide to our high school kids, um, the next generation of, okay, well, this is how you move forward in a responsible way in, in a well-regulated marketplace. And we would do the exact same thing for alcohol. We would do the exact same thing for cannabis and all of the other elements of our society. So why not iGaming and single game sports betting? Hey Mike, so who who drives that ship then? Is that is that the Canadian Gaming Association? Is is it the government? Is the AGCO? Like, do you, do you have some thoughts on how you you bring bring that all together? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, Steve. And I think so. There are a lot of players in this space as well, and this is going to be a part. So I'll I'll tease a little bit of what Sher Dr. Sherry Bradish and I are going to talk about at the Canadian Gaming Summit here, but. Because because there are a lot of, you know, what I'll say, you know, and we see this on LinkedIn all the time, right? There, there are gurus and ninjas and, and Jedis in the space. And, you know, I, I think when it comes to research and education, there are a lot of stakeholders who are looking to capitalize on that as well, whether they're academics like myself, nonprofits, and then other sort of consortium organizations, you know, RCG, the Responsible Council on Gaming, um, you know, whether it's GRIO, the Gambling Research Exchange of Ontario, which was primarily the consortium back in 2019 that ran arm's length funded research from the government. I, I think it, it's an all hands on deck approach. I, I do see some operators working with some of these stakeholders. Um, as an example, for instance, FanDuel is working with uh, the Responsible Gaming uh, Council, our RGC with uh, Shelly White, um, to try to drum up some information about responsible gaming practices but that's a not only a one-off but you know is it as robust as it needs to be is it arm's length the answer is, is certainly no um you know mgm not bet, bet mgm but mgm uh provides uh, uh you know invests into the research and education space at an arm's length as well it's it's always i'll say this it's always dicey when operators are putting up the funds but i do think operators do need, need to put up those funds um, and stand back at an arm's length and say, look, we're investing into this marketplace because we believe in it. And, and I'll say this, Amanda's been saying this on and on time and time again. Um, you know, the operators want this to be a, a, a marketplace that works, right? And so you can't just take from the market. You also have to invest in the market too. And so operators do need to look at their research and education, not just internally, but maybe, and this is a bit, um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult conversation, but to say, look, we're going to invest some money um, in this space and we're going to walk away from it and just let it happen. And let, let, let's see what comes of it. And I know that that can be hard to, to uh, reconcile with, but that that's a little bit of what needs to happen here is that arms length approach, but primarily Steve, to answer your question more poignantly, 
it's got to be driven from the government because if in a free market, um, in a well-regulated market uh, that iGaming in Ontario is, it's got to be driven by the regulator and the government. I mean, if anyone's going to drive it, it's got to be them. I would like to see operators get way more involved in this. I'd like to see them partner uh, with academics, partner with each other and work together um, on some consortium collaboration. Um, listen, if Rogers and Bell can do it for the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics, any, anyone can, right? So, I, you know, I think the operators should start to look at that as well, whether it's with RCG or RGC, excuse me, with Grio, with academics like myself and Dr. Bradish, um, but also it's got to be driven from the government and the government's got to want to take a stronger stance on this if it's going to come to fruition. Uh, Amanda, I want to give you a chance to weigh in here. Well, I know from the CGA submission that went in on Monday, um, the CGA has offered to jointly fund some research, Ontario research, and it didn't get into the specifics about who and what, but I agree with Mike that it needs to be properly funded. So this would be on behalf of the association, which represents uh, you know some of the largest operators in the market. The other thing, and I'm gonna segue into the um, province-wide self-exclusion program or the centralized self-exclusion program that's coming, um, the IGO side of things is also asking for operator feedback on uh, funding RG programs. So originally the standards had been that we'd have a percentage of our GGR and we'd all go run amok and launch our own RG programs. But we pushed back and said it would be stronger if we could pool that money and put it into a group or centralized program. So I think, you know, as all the operators out there are going to be providing feedback on this. So one, I think the group, you know, pooling of money is stronger than operators doing things individually, but also if we can direct that into research or we can direct that into an education program, then that is an avenue that could assist as well. So, you know, to add to maybe a little bit of hope that there could soon be some dedicated independent, you know, research on, on in Ontario based on Ontario data, Ontario customers, Ontario issues, um, hopefully, you know, end of the year, you know, I don't know, next year we could have some of that coming back and that would be very helpful. Hey, Mike, you uh, just off what Amanda just said, uh, you and I had a phone conversation I think, a couple of weeks ago about uh, your recent trip to Alberta and the, the research group they they ha have out there. Can you maybe just talk a little bit to us about about uh, what, what the work that's being done out there? Yeah, no, th thanks for, for throwing it back, Steve. Yeah, the, the Alberta Gambling Research Institute, uh, also known as AGRI, um, has been around for at least 10 years, it's probably closer to 15 or 20. So I'm not sure if it goes all the way back to the Ralph Klein government, um, but it, it's been government funded for some time. It's a consortium of three universities in Alberta, the University of Lethbridge, the University of Calgary, and the University of Alberta. And, you know, at the time that Agri was developed, you know, the government of Alberta recognized, hey, look, we've got exceptional research talent at these universities. You know, we want to know more about the gaming space and, and, and betting, not just sports, obviously, but primarily VLTs and, and land-based casino stuff. Um, let's put our researchers to work. Let's fund this research at an arm's length. We'll, we'll put the money in, get the heck out of the way and allow the researchers to do the work and provide the insights or, or sorry, provide the data that can then derive insights for us. And then we can make policy thereafter. That's the way it should work. And it's been working extremely well out in Alberta. And so, yeah, Steve, to your point, 
uh, a month ago, I, I was in Banff for the very first time um, to, to speak about sports betting, at least the framework here in Ontario. Uh, and there was a lot of re uh, receptivity to wanting to do more research in Ontario. So it's great to hear, you know, Amanda uh, mentioned that there could be some, some stuff on the horizon. Um, but, you know, I, I think what we've done very poorly here in Ontario, and, and I would say this, this is me, you know, kind of going off on a bit of a tangent, so I apologize. But, but what, what we do very poorly here in Canada, and I would say the United States as well, versus England, Australia, and other parts of the world, is activate and actually, uh, you know, galvanize the, the research communities that we've got. I mean, we've got the talent. Um, we just need the proper resourcing. And so, you know, why would you try to go off? Yeah, to, to Amanda's point, like, why would you try to do something on your own? when you can galvanize the existing institutions and frameworks you've got. And so if you're the regulator here in Ontario, if, if you're the AGCO, you know, and if you're the government of Ontario, I mean, obviously research isn't necessarily the first thing on your mind. I mean, you've got a lot of other things going on, but when you're trying to create a responsible marketplace and you're trying to get some sort of third party, um, independent, high quality stuff, um, you're not outsourcing to a KPMG or a Deloitte or, you know, working with another Jedi or guru or ninja, but to actually work with the people that you're already paying. Um, we've got publicly funded education institutions, higher education institutions in this province, whether it's U of T, TMU, Minot, Brock, Windsor, you know, especially institutions that are in land-based casino places like mine at Brock and Windsor, um, you know, Caesars there. It, it behooves the government to activate the existing talent and utilize them for their, for their expertise. So, uh, yeah, you know, Agri, again, just really quickly, they've been doing a fantastic job. Uh, they share a lot of insights. Uh, the Alberta um, uh, regulator was there and they were listening very intently to not only what I had to say, but um, my fellow colleagues uh, from Ontario with respect to the research that we've been doing here in Ontario, albeit as limited as it's been. But they are very extremely interested because they want to learn. BCLC was there; they were learning. So it's we need to have more of those symposia, not just the Canadian Gaming Summit from a practitioner side, but we need to have more open forums for um, those who are both critical and uh, you know on on in favor of single game sports betting. We need to have the discourse play out, um, but it needs to be a data informed discourse, not one that's just for the sake of. Right. That's great stuff, Mike. And, and listen, don't uh, no worries about going on a tangent. We're quite accustomed to Gavin Roth going on tangents in this form, so uh, no need at all to apologize. I can still hear you, Steve. Oh, sorry, sorry, um, <laughs> Amanda. Just uh, getting back into serious mode here. Uh, you know, I, I hear and I I, I read uh, I read quite often about how you know an organization like the RGC. Um, you can only put so much stock in the research it does because they're the, the, it's funded by the the operators. And I again, I just ask you, like, what what what's the response, or, or what's your response when you when you hear comments or see comments like that being made? Well, I, you know, the lottery corporations uh, are um, you know are supporters as well. They do they do underwrite the funding for the RGC as well. I would say that the RGC has a mandate and the mandate is to make sure that any form of gambling that is offered in this province is offered safely and responsibly and that, you know, there are places that are easy to find for customers to go and get help. Um, and I think that is something that no one would question and no one would push back. And I do think an organization like the RGC, because again, remember RGC also 
has a side business that is RG check that goes in and evaluates the RG standards, processes, materials, communications, um, and it's mandatory for every operator in Ontario to go through RG check within two years of being in the market. So I think that there is a role for the RGC to play um, in terms of research. Do I think it's the only voice we need to listen to? Absolutely not. I think that, you know, the more, you know, qualitative third party, you know, research that we can undertake. And I really like Mike's point about reaching out to um, educational institutions in those communities where we have gaming. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the more that we can contribute, the better. Hey, man, I also, is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to this, the centralized uh, self-exclusion program that, that iGaming Ontario is going to bring in? Because I, I did, uh, there's something that you and I went back and forth on email today, and, and you've mentioned in this form before. Yeah, and I think we'll be talking about it a lot over the coming uh, weeks and months because I um, I go uh, issued a consultation document to operators last week, I believe, um, and feedback is due by the end of the month, and there will be something launching in September. It's not, unfortunately, a technology-based tool, but there will be a program coming, so um, there will be a need to do a lot of customer awareness and customer education around this because it means, you know, we'll pick on Gavin if Gavin goes and opens a FanDuel account and then decides he wants to self-exclude himself, he can't go down the street and then open a PointsBet or a Unibet or a anyone else account. Um, so that is the one piece that has been missing. And IGO has decided, you know, as they're trying to find a technology solution, which will be a little more complicated to, to implement across, you know, 45 operators, um, they'll get something in place for the fall. Uh, so that is welcome news. Um, and it will mean that customers will have to adapt and change their behavior because customers who were used to just self-excluding just to kind of close their account down will now find themselves locked out of every online operator in the province. So they'll actually have to take the correct journey, you know, use the correct tool, you know, deactivate or close their account down if they want to be able to still open an account with another operator. So there will be the need for a lot of customer education just to make them aware that this change is coming. But yeah, I'm sure as as I go kind of um, finalizes their their plans on this, there'll be a lot more to talk about over the summer. Yeah, we should mention too, a, a few different outlets covered this story this week, and it's including the newsletter as well. We've got a link to Mark Keith's story in CDC Gaming Reports, and that uh, the British Columbia Lottery Corporation, they're toughening up their um, uh, f requirements around their Game Break self-exclusion program this summer. You're now, if you're if you're enrolled in a self-exclusion program in BC, you're now now going to need to show um, government-issued photo ID uh, when you go into a casino there. So again, that's I think that's good news for the entire industry. Um, we got a few minutes left. I want to wrap up with a couple of things, and and uh, Gavin would love to get your thoughts here. And uh, Jessica Wellman at SBC had some interesting uh, tweets yesterday, and, and uh, a story as well that's in the uh, in the newsletter today about. The, uh, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission discussion on uh, Tuesday about the use of sportsbook logos for advertising and marketing purposes and the, the commission in Massachusetts, they're suggesting that something needs to be added to branding, um, letting, letting people know that people under the age of 21 can't bet. 
and Gavin, they were actually they were referring to the the you know the famous left field wall at the Fenway Park in in Boston, and it just felt to me, and again, seeing some of the tweets out there, that you're kind of going down a slippery slope if you start fooling around with that kind of branding. Uh, but again, would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like it just doesn't feel like that's the right environment to do it. I, what I what I like to what I like seeing now is, I think a healthy portion of the mass media that the the operators have um, have purchased is being allocated to responsible gaming much more than we saw in the early stages. And I think instead of having a little disclaimer, I think that's more effective is to put dedicated messaging with ambassadors, perhaps focusing on that. I've dealt with a lot of brands over the years who had those sideline, you know, LED ribbons and, and A-frames. And some of them wanted to put a lot of subtext never effective at, at being being seen, retained, camera picked up. Um, it's not the right asset to be putting a bunch of disclaimers, just not effective. And Amanda, you and I went back and forth a bit on email this morning and, and I brought up the example of, you know, if, if you open a can of worms here because if you're an alcohol company, do now do we see a Molson Canadian logo on the, on the ice of Scotiabank Arena with, you know, in, in smaller print, uh, you know, you can't drink until you turn 18 years old. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a little confusing because, you know, I, I don't operate in, in Massachusetts, but you would think it would be pretty widely understood that if the legal drinking age is 21, it, you know, usually the gambling age in a state follows the drinking age. So I don't know why putting 21, you know, in in, in stadiums is anyway going to influence or not influence behavior. Um, I know in Ontario, all of our communications carry the 19 plus Ontario only with the connects information. So to me, that's a little bit more, you know, if you're actually going to be directing things directly at a customer, that's the way to do it, you know, to just splash that up when in, in, like I said, I think it should be pretty much assumed what the legal age is to do things like drink and gamble in a province or a state. Uh, let's wrap up here. I just want to mention quickly before we we leave you and appreciate everybody's patience today. Um, we uh, we announced in the newsletter this morning that our the presenting sponsors of our newsletter uh, GBG PLC of the UK um, they are going to host a webinar that that we're uh, Gaming News Canada will will do on uh, Tuesday June six and uh, Amanda is going to be part of our our panel. And it's going to be a one-hour discussion, one-hour webinar on, on what's next for iGaming in Canada. So we're still finalizing the rest of the panelists for that. Um, I'm going to be hosting that webinar. It's fantastic that, Amanda, that you're going to be be involved in that. And and I look forward to that discussion. And I really think, well, that'll help tee up a lot of the discussions we're, we'll undoubtedly hear and be part of at the Canadian Gaming Summit a couple of weeks later. So I guess just a week later. Uh, around iGaming, which we know is a really hot button topic in the United States right now, and, and will be uh, will be a topic of much, much discussion at the Canadian Gaming Summit as well. Uh, let's wrap it up there. Uh, Want to thank uh, Amanda Brewer from Kinder Group, uh, Dr. Mike Narain from Brock University, Gavin Roth and Mark Silver of Parlay Media Group for again really uh, re really good hour, lots of lots of information. Um, as I mentioned, we we will get Richard McLaren back uh, back on the program. We'll shoot to do that next week and and tee up uh, the symposium on on May 30 31st. 
Uh, it is a long weekend, so we uh, we 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 want to ask everybody to please be safe if you're going to be on the roads and enjoy your weekend. Be responsible. And thanks so much again for joining us on the Gaming News Canada show presented by Osler, Hoskin and Harcourt LLP. Have a great long weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Gaming News Canada show. Sign up for our newsletter at gamingnewscanada.ca. Follow Steve McAllister on LinkedIn to join the live audience. Message Steve if you're interested in being a sponsor or featured guest. 